0: Welcome to Critical Issues Commentary, the podcast ministry of Gospel of Grace Fellowship, a non denominational Christian church in St. Louis Park, Minnesota. This is Jessica Kramis, your host for today, and I'm speaking with Bob DeWay, Gospel of Grace's teacher and theologian, and author of Critical Issues Commentary. In this series, we are discussing Priscilla Shearer's book on prayer. The title is Fervent. Last week, And the week before, we talked about the 10 strategies that she laid out in her book. We looked at some of the verses that she used to support her strategies and discussed some issues that we found there. Today, we're going to discuss an allegorical use of scripture. Now, before we actually talk about the passage that she uses, do you just want to define what an allegorical use of scripture is?
1: Yes, allegorical interpretation of scripture goes way back. In church history. And what it really lays aside is the idea of authorial intent. In other words, the Holy Spirit inspired author, whoever that is, whether it's Moses, David, whoever wrote, Paul, Peter, anyone, the point is the author determines the meaning, not the reader. Okay. And so the allegorical method was devised in church history, to and and before that even, to somehow change the biblical meaning or to make it say something that we thought were more appropriate to what the Bible actually means. Okay. And so, for example, the parables of Jesus have been allegorized and still are without any regard to the context the meaning of the original author be it john or luke or mark or matthew and so on and we see this has become more prevalent even as we go on here
0: okay and i think that you will find this is what is going on in this chapter of the book now we are going to discuss the floating axe head passage. And this is out of strategy one in Priscilla Shearer's book. And strategy one was against your passion. And her subtitle for that is getting it back when it's gone. And just as a review, I'm going to read what she says about this. If I were your enemy, I'd seek to dim your passion, dull your interest in spiritual things, dampen your belief in God's ability and his personal concern for you, and convince you that the hope you've lost is never coming back. It was probably just a lie to begin with. The passage that she uses to back this up is found in 2 Kings 6 verses 1 through 7. It's the, as we mentioned earlier, that was the floating axe head passage. Do you want to read that for us? And then I will share some quotes from the book and we'll determine if this is a proper application of that scripture.
1: Sure. Two Kings six, one through seven. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, now behold, the place before you where we are living is too limited for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and each of us take from there a beam and let us make a place there for ourselves where we may live. So he said, Go. Then one said, Please be willing to go with your servants. And he answered, I shall go. And so he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one of them was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried out and said, Alas, my master... For it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? And when he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. He said, take it up for yourself. So he put out his hand and took it. That was the end of verse 7 there. Okay. Now, I just read 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7.
0: Right. Okay, so 2 Kings 6, 1 through 7 We have Elijah and the floating ax head. Now, keeping that context in mind, here's what Shearer says. And I'm going to give you kind of a lengthy quote, but I think it's important to understand the context of what she's saying. So she says this, we think the reason we've stopped praying is because, oh, we just don't feel like it anymore. But possibly this lack of feeling is a clue that the enemy's strategy has begun to take effect. And she's going to go on and discuss about our passion in prayer. And she says, let's start here, praying for this, to recover and maintain your passion, to regain and sustain your cutting edge. Now, the passage she chooses to prove that we need to maintain our cutting edge was this one that we just read. Wow. Yeah.
1: And it's go ahead
0: <laughs> well it's it's really pretty tricky because she's playing on this this axe head and and the cutting edge of the axe head but what we have to ask ourselves was was the author trying to tell us that we need to keep our cutting edge in prayer or is that not the point of this passage
1: it's pretty obviously not the point right keeping your cutting edge has nothing to do with the story of elisha and the axe head floating. The point clearly was that Elisha was the prophet of God. Yes. God was with them, and they're comforted by the fact that they had a true prophet in Israel. The idea of a cutting edge or God doing something miraculous in the life of someone now who's frustrated with life's problems and lost their passion or cutting edge is accidental. You could use a story from anywhere to come up with the same kind of illustration. So the fact that it's from the Bible doesn't give it any particular um, authority in the way it's interpreted there. It's simply used as an allegory or metaphor.
0: Right. And so to try and take that passage and make it say that this means we have to keep our cutting edge in prayer. It it just doesn't stand. It doesn't hold up.
1: Yes, and I would say this about that approach. It's very popular because it gets the attention of people, or it seems to be helpful to motivate us to not give up. But the issues are totally different. And secular motivational speakers can use similar things, not taken from the Bible, to motivate people to try harder or to be happy or to not give up on their family. And so the fact that it's in a Christian context and it's a story out of the Old Testament really is more accidental. I mean, it's chosen for a reason because it's found in the Bible, but it doesn't apply. Right. And this is so common. And so recently I've been in one teaching A Bible class, I asked the students at church in the Bible class, what's the most powerful thing that God will use to sanctify us and change our lives and bring us all the way to glory? I claim that believing the promises of God, knowing Christ, and the Holy Spirit-inspired author speaks for God powerfully and infallibly so if we take the text and go off on a tangent with it that has nothing to do with what the author said we can't expect the Holy Spirit is going to use that because it's not what he said he right. the Spirit it says in Hebrews and the Holy Spirit spoke and Scripture is cited yes so I'm not denying the inspiration of Second Kings. Okay. Because that's what the scripture is saying here. But the application has nothing to do with what the Holy Spirit said. It's merely motivational speaking.
0: Right. And, you know, th- this wasn't intended to be a self-help passage.
1: No, it showed that God was with Elisha. And there's other stories like that in the Old Testament, showing the uniqueness of God's power at work with his covenant people. In that case, those who were under the Old Covenant and were trusting God's promises.
0: That's right. And she makes four points underneath this. And in the first one, she kind of starts out on the right track. Her first point, number one, is despite the lost accent, the presence of God was still near. And she goes on to say, in ancient Israel, Yahweh's prophets were representations of his presence and his power with his people. So she kind of hints. That's, that's right. Yeah, she hints at this, at this right idea.
1: Well, what's that got to do with the cutting edge, which is... I would call that um, semantic. I think I made some notes when I read the book—a semantic sleight of hand.
0: Yes. And the it goes, writer
1: of Second Kings wasn't talking about cutting. You're cutting edge in regard to how we use it in English today.
0: Right. It wasn't, and it wasn't about precision in prayer, so that we can wage a warfare against Satan.
1: Yeah, and the other point is, for the Christian, how do we know what God has promised, and how do we know that he's with us? And there are many people, especially in Christianized cultures, that a lot of America has been, and, and the West in general, we just assume that everybody that shows up at church or to a seminar or wants to have a better life, Must be a Christian because they have Christian things going on around them.
0: That's right. And in those situations, these types of books are really even more damaging because they're not getting the gospel and they're not finding out how to be in right relationship with God. So then they're just using it as a self help book.
1: Right. And that's certainly, we don't want to assume any motives. This is so common in America. I'm not surprised. That many writers do this. Mm -hmm. Okay. And many of the most popular books are based on allegorized scripture and things that make us feel good or motivate people whether they know Christ or not. I'm not saying that I know in all of the people that go to a big seminar that none of them know Christ. Many probably do. But if we don't zero in on the author's intent and then make valid implications and applications that derive from the text. Yes, okay, that okay. meant that God was with them, and Elisha was the one who spoke for God. Right. But Elisha wasn't speaking for God in such a way that we know that we have passion. Because exactly. even at that, you have, in my opinion, um misuse of range of meaning. Okay. Okay. Passion is a word that can be used in a lot of different ways. Yes. In English. And so there are maybe, let's take the word zeal. That's in the scriptures. Okay. There are people who have zeal for God, but without understanding. Right. There are people that have lots of passion and zeal that have false assurance. There are people with passion and zeal that get many problems solved. People want to listen to them. People want to go to their seminars. People feel better about it. But they don't have one thing about redemption, atonement, eternal life, eternal hope, but just how to get through life's problems now.
0: Yes. And so we talked about this kind of sleight of hand. So she does start off with the presence of God in this passage, but Mm -hmm. then the sleight of hand comes in when she turns it to feelings and what she assumes Satan is doing. So Satan would like to convince you that your lack of passion is an indication that God was either never there at all, or has gotten disgusted with you and left. He wants you to believe that God has not seen your struggle and is unaware or disinterested in the details of your life. But just because you're feeling at a loss for words and want to, just because you're cutting edge, in quotes, she has it, in prayer seems misplaced for now, does not mean that God isn't close by. So, again, yes, that's true, but that's not the point of this passage. And our feelings really aren't relevant.
1: Well, as a matter of fact, there are so many uh, fuzzy, or confuse theological categories there. Yes. So the presence of God mm-hmm. with his people presupposes that we actually have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Right. And so that's why it's important to preach the gospel and explain who Christ is and so on, as we've done many times. Yes. Yes. It's very important that we get our doctrine right. So that being said, we can't assume that a whole bunch of people from any sorts of religious background, including various Christian ones, have God's presence in their life at all. Right. In America here, there are many people who we know have false gods, false doctrine. For instance, Mormonism, I may have mentioned that. Uh, I don't know if it's in this series, but I've talked about it before. Who have a totally different Christ. Yes. Okay. So how can you know what you're even talking about and who your audience is if you can't define who Christ is and what it is that we know that he's with us?
0: Right. And, you know, if we are in Christ, then we know that God is near and he hears us. And if we're not, praying with precision is not going to make any difference.
1: Right. And we will talk about that, too. It's really sad. And I hope our listeners understand this. When we're younger, which I'm not anymore, and we're experiencing sort of problems and difficulties that people want to get resolved, rightfully so, we become functionally temporal-minded in this sense. Okay. If I can get these problems solved right now, then I'm a happy Christian. Right. Without regard to eternal life, fulfilling God's calling, which is to serve him and to trust him, and believe his promises, and to really look forward to what God will uh, do in eternity. And I've been preaching on that in 1 Corinthians. Well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of thy master. Is that because you had your cutting edge? No. See, the focus so easily gets off, off of the eternal and the promises And the reason for trials, which is not for us to feel better about things or to solve problems, but in order to sanctify us.
0: Right. And I think in this, we really see the difference between the providential worldview and the warfare worldview. Oh, yeah. Priscilla Shearer holds to the warfare worldview. And so in in her system, then, all of these things are contingent on us doing the right things or us praying the right way. It skews the way we view everything. And so then you, you really see that. So in her point, number two, under this, she says the servant was doing something good when he lost his cutting edge, bringing us back to that cutting edge
1: allegory. Not only (laughs) that doing something good, meaning building a shelter or whatever. Right. So here, here's something that our listeners can really apply. Okay. Is the teaching we're hearing something that would be any less applicable if our neighbors or whatever are trying to solve a problem, figure a way to build a house, build, figure a way to do whatever they're trying to do, get the car to run, have a happy family, do the various things people do, is this any different other than it's a Christianized context?
0: No, it really isn't.
1: And what if the neighbors are doing way better? In other words, their children are behaving better. They've got a nicer situation. They're happier, at least as far as we can tell. And they have some sort of a religious affiliation or not. So, if we really focus on these sort of things, are they going to be convinced that a floating axe head in the Old Testament is going to work better for them than the Christian seminar over here? No. And so we're assuming because people that buy the books at least think they're Christians, and many probably are, that that's all that matters. Right. There's nothing uniquely Christian about being productive.
0: Right. And, and so she, she says here, one of Satan's dirtiest little tactics is to sneak in and steal it while you're square in the middle of investing yourself in worthwhile activities. That's why you're sensing a drag in your faith, in your spiritual fire. It can sometimes simply mean you're doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing.
1: No, you can't know that. We can't
0: know that. We can't find that in this passage of scripture. None of this. None of this is, is a logical application of that passage.
1: Think about this. Every one of us, if we, unless we're very isolated, every one of us knows people with no interest in Christianity who's very happy, very. Productive, always helping the people around. And they're the kind of people that'll solve anybody's problem anywhere because that's what they do.
0: Right. Unbelievers can be great citizens and great neighbors and nice people.
1: Right. And it, that's virtuous. There is such a thing as common grace. Yeah. And, but all of that can happen without ever believing in the gospel, or glorifying God. I've seen people like that, that when you finally get to know them better, if you talk about anything Christian, they suddenly start blaspheming God.
0: Right, exactly.
1: Now the audience here, I realize, are people that are Christians, or at least are buying books in a Christian context. Yes. But there's nothing about being productive that's uniquely Christian. Okay. What's uniquely Christian is that we're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the value of our service will be judged in eternity. I'm thinking about that because I'm working on a sermon for another week about the the builders and the reward. We don't even know. Right. Okay. And if you read the Psalms, how often do you see a lament in the Psalms and Proverbs, especially the Psalms where the lament is that the wicked are very happy.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Why is That's it like
0: that? That's oh. yeah. true. Yeah, exactly. See,
1: so you don't see a seminar on why the wicked are so happy.
0: <laughs> I don't think too many tickets would sell.
1: <laughs> it it doesn't work that way. It doesn't mean that the wicked are always happy, but sometimes there are. Right. And And, and it's
0: really not about our happiness or our feelings.
1: I know. And in the end, the psalmist says, but then I beheld the end. Yeah. Here's the essentials. If you don't have a biblical worldview, if you don't believe that there is a creation of the entire universe out of nothing, and that God, the fall happened, God created Adam, and the story in Genesis 1 and 2 are literal things that God did. And then the fall, and you don't believe there's ultimately judgment, then all you have left is who's happiest in this life, right? Okay, to have a big conference on how to gain your passion, your cutting edge, and assume that those other matters are probably already there. So let's go on to what, solving problems now. I think it's a pretty big assumption,
0: right? Now her number three in this chapter, is the axe was borrowed. And she says, the presence of passion, faith, and belief in our hearts is a gift. That is true. That, that does come from God. It's on loan to our souls. Like the man's axe, our passion and spiritual fervor come from someone else as a gift to us. So towards the end of this paragraph, she says, your enemy, however, coy as he is, wants to burden you with blame for not having something that didn't originate with you in the first place. Don't fall for that. Now, keep in mind, she's bringing this back to an axe that was borrowed.
1: Well, it's certainly good advice to not um, have feelings of anxiety and guilt over things that are not the key issue. Okay, It's good advice, but you really don't need a floating axe head to go to that part of the Scripture for Christians that true guilt is only dealt with by the blood of Jesus, which was shed once for all.
0: Yes, and And, that's not um, borrowed. No, Once we have the imputed righteousness of Christ, it's not like somebody loaned us an axe.
1: Yeah, and we can focus on those things, and it's good advice not to do so. Mm -hmm. And I tend to do that. I may be out in the garage and I find a wrench that I remember somebody had loaned me 35 years ago. Right. And who's no longer living. And I thought, man, I should have got that back to him. Yeah. If you just spend enough time doing that, well, certainly not going to. What can you do?
0: Okay, right.
1: That's just human wisdom on the scene of history. Bigger issue is, do we know that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from sin and that we're here now to honor him and to glorify him and that these matters, we do what we can by God's grace as we go through history, but Satan's tactic isn't to make us feel anxious that, oh, I borrowed that and I never gave it back. You could give it back if the neighbor is still there. Yeah. His tactic is to get us to fail to believe that we need Christ, atonement, redemption, and that all that matters is what happens now in this life. Right. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not from God. That's what temptation is about.
0: Yeah, Okay, so then we have number four. Only a work of God could retrieve the axe head. Now that's true. It's a heavy axe, axe head in the water. And I've,
1: uh, I've heavy things in the water. When I snagged them before fishing. Okay. But um, that's certainly not pertinent in this case. It was a miracle, and so since Elisha's not here,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I have yet to see somebody miraculously throw a stick in the water and have the axe head float up. Yeah, that was a miracle that God did for His reason, because of Elisha being the prophet of God. In our life, the passages that are pertinent to this are in the Psalms, the Proverbs, in the Book of James, in First and Second Peter. If you're a believer, there's answers to this. And the fact is that the cutting edge is just a semantic sleight of hand based on allegory. There's nothing to do with believing God and persevering through trials.
0: Amen. All right. We are almost out of time. Do you want to give us a quick wrap up?
1: We're not saying these things to suggest that Priscilla Shearer is doing something different than a lot of popular Christian preachers and teachers have done. We're saying this in order to get us to focus on what temptation is really like, and that the warfare worldview is going to harm us, and that we need to believe the promises as defined by the biblical authors. In our hope, it can only be true If we're trusting Christ and our sins are forgiven and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sins, it's right that we should trust God. It's there for that. But allegorizing scripture in the long run will not help us trust God. It will confuse us.
0: All right, we are out of time for this edition of Critical Issues Commentary Radio. You can access this episode and many others, as well as years worth of articles, at the website cicministry.org. While you're there, click on Contact and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. We want to encourage you all to stand firm in one spirit with one mind and strive together for the faith of the gospel. For Critical Issues Commentary, this is Jessica Kramas.
1: And Bob Deway.